Welcome to TCN Talks. The goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant, need-to-know information to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader, and for the team at all levels of the organization. Our goal is concise and relevant information because brevity signals respect. And the bookends of our podcast are always something to make you think deeper about life, about our topic, or both. And now, here's Chris Como. Hello and welcome. Before we get started today, I want to thank our sponsor, Delta Care Rx. Delta Care Rx is the title sponsor for our 2023 TCN Leadership Immersion Courses, as well as all of our TCN Talks podcasts for 2023. Delta Care Rx is primarily known as a national hospice PBM and prescription mail order company. Delta Care Rx is a premier vendor of TCN and provides not only pharmaceutical care, but also niche software innovations that save their customers time, stress, and money. Thanks to Delta Care Rx for all the great work they do in end of life and serious illness care. Also, our next Telios Collaborative Network Leadership Immersion course is the week of May 1st. This training has been reviewed as some of the most potent and powerful leadership training hospice and palliative care leaders have ever been through. Join us. Go to Telios, T-E-L-E-I-O-S-C-N.org and look under, look under courses. Also, whatever platform you're listening to our podcast on, be sure to follow us so you don't miss any of the great episodes that we have planned for 2023. So our guest today is Peter Benjamin. Welcome, Thank Peter. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, Peter, what does our audience need to know about the the man, the myth, the legend, Peter Benjamin? <laughs> well, I'll give you a quick thumbnail biographical sketch with I, I think is important in the sense that we're all the product of our experience. So my experience started in 1980, my first job out of school. I worked for, for a big hospital supply manufacturer and distributor. And I think even though it was many, many years ago, one lesson there has impacted me since because that was the era when hospitals began to consolidate and was really the end of the era of individual hospitals. It was the beginning of HCA and Humana. So I think there's a lesson embedded in my DNA in the healthcare world that things change and there's consolidation and group purchasing and things that are often inconvenient, but nonetheless occur. Early in my career, I got into the non-hospital space and spent much of the 80s in the home oxygen, home infusion, home medical equipment space. I ended up as the VP of sales and marketing for a company that we all now know as Apria. I did that through the 1980s, went into the consulting business and ended up with a client in South Florida where I now and have since lived. That was one of the first four hospice organizations in the United States. Back then they were called Hospice Care Incorporated. And a colleague introduced me to their founders and they were interested in reimagining how they might grow their business. And so we suggested they think about a more distinctive brand. There were 38 organizations called Hospice Care Incorporated back then. And it's not too much of a stretch, I think, for your listeners to remember that there was no such thing as selling in the hospice world. And so we made a couple of recommendations and the founders, Esther and Hugh, offered me a job. So my wife and I moved to Florida in 1992 and I became the first VP of sales and marketing of that company. My first job there was to create that brand and hire a sales team. So, of course, everyone listening in knows that organization as VTOS and that's what led my wife and I to Florida. I stayed there for five years uh, in 1996. People have often forgotten Apria, my old friends, were going to buy Vitas. And when that transaction was announced, a number of us were going to move on. And so my wife and I started our current consulting business, the Huntington Consulting Group in 1996. Our practice remains pretty consistent. 50, 60% of our businesses with traditional hospice organizations. I say that because their businesses have morphed and changed over my time with them. 
But the rest of our business is very intentionally outside of, but related to hospice. So we work with pharmaceutical and biotech companies and oncology and rare disease. We work with population health companies, other non-acute, I sort of hate the word post-acute. I think we'll come to that during our discussion, but I've worked a considerable amount in the senior housing world and in the payer space. Our typical client is the CEO of uh, increasingly not just hospice, community-based end-of-life care provider organization. And our typical work is strategy, helping them imagine how to grow and increasingly helping them imagine how to affiliate with other organizations. So that's my story. Good deal, Peter. Wow. I, I actually, I knew some of that, but I did know all of that. We've got probably some mutual connections at Apria I did know about. And of course, I think you remember I start my career in Florida at Covenant Hospice. And yeah. When I was starting was right around the time you were transitioning into consulting. And again, I heard your name back in 95 when I first started. So again, I, that's why I say the man, the myth, the legend. I mean, your, your your reputation and name precedes you for many years in our wonderful hospice segment. So I think what we're going to call our show today, Peter, is a look back in order to look forward, really forward, <laughs> because you're doing some great work and talking aboard. So let's start there with the back. You have such a rich history in our hospice movement. So as you reflect back, what are maybe two or three things that are important to reflect upon and maybe even name that have gotten us to where we are today in hospice? I think absent a bunch of courageous folks who literally were movement-oriented and movement-driven, end-of-life care wouldn't be where it is today. And I'm fortunate to have known and worked with many of them, but I hope that their stories continue forever long before or long after us, Chris. But I think for me, the, the real thing to honor about what's brought us where we are is folks who, as I said, have the courage to do something that wasn't economically viable, that was never intended to be economically viable, that was intended to transform how people in their community experienced end-of-life care. And I think that backdrop is important, even though it often becomes a crutch. And so I think that a movement has been transformed into a marketplace, and I think that marketplace is experiencing a metamorphosis. And I don't think the metamorphosis has to be inconsistent with the movement, but I think oftentimes people experience change defensively. And so I think our opportunity and challenge going forward is to embrace the metamorphosis of our current marketplace, consistent with the pillars and values of the folks that created the movement itself. That's well said, Peter. When I think about um, you know, most of the people we've had the privilege of caring for, certainly over my career, going back to 95, has been that greatest generation. But going forward, it's going to be more of the baby boomers. And they have uh, transformed every demographic and mar market segment as they've kind of aged throughout the decades and, you know, suburbia, retirement, um, they've transformed it all. So I think what you're poking on is right on. So I think a lot of hospices are bringing you to talk to their boards these days. So what are you sharing with them? Movement market metamorphosis. I think that we are in the last chapter of this second piece of where we've been. So the movement became commercialized. I don't think that's a dirty word. Frankly, I think the commercialization of hospice was largely good. I didn't say 100% good. That never happens in marketplaceization. But I think that the movement from a hospice movement to a marketplace allowed a whole lot more people to experience better end-of-life care than they would have. I think what we're facing now is a metamorphosis, meaning I think that the way end-of-life care is going to be experienced increasingly by the consumers you referenced will go well beyond what we call hospice care today. 
And so I think the challenge for traditional hospice providers is not to be defensive, not to look to regulatory protection, not to look to preserving the way we did it because that's how we did it, but rather to capitalize on what we should remember from how we started. So for example, we should be leading changes in how people experience end-of-life care in senior housing. We should be leading changes in how people experience end-of-life care based on the kinds of disease progressions they're experiencing. And so my work with boards typically has two foci. One, the recognition that as marketplaces mature, efficiency is important. No one likes that conversation, but we hospices are simply going to have to be more effective in how we operate efficiently. And absent growth, nothing else matters. But our growth is less and less, in fact, I think, sick quickly, not at all, going to be the product of traditional hospice care. So my net-net message for boards is be open-minded to affiliating with like-minded other organizations. That doesn't just mean hospices. And be focused on metamorphosis as your friend, because otherwise it will be your enemy. You know, uh, Mark, you may not have had a chance. I actually taped a podcast, which really was a monologue last year. And uh, my wife gave me the title. It was kind of catchy. It was Grow, So Flow, and No, and that we're going to have to grow in new ways. The so is we got to sow some innovative new ideas. The flow is what you're poking on that. Um, I know You might not know my background was actually a KPMG and then a Fortune 50 company in manufacturing. So I got to be on the front end of the whole kind of quality quality revolution, kind of what Toyota was bringing to the United States, and just that whole efficiency lean paradigm. And so removing friction with your customer is not something we've really thought about very much. Removing friction with your staff um, is not something that we've thought about. So that's where my mind goes whenever I hear you talk about that. Is that what you're poking on? Um, getting very lean, getting very efficient and removing those points of friction with those we serve as well as our staff? Yes, but, or yes, and. I don't think this is simply a cut cost conversation, and I'm not suggesting you're suggesting that. I think, going back to your traditional background, this is appreciating the S-curve nature of every service and product line. And I think it's often, frankly, somewhat offensive to colleagues to have to face the fact that we're on the wrong side of the S-curve. Markets mm. mature. And suddenly other folks come in with other ways of doing it. So this isn't just being a more efficient hospital. This is also rethinking end-of-life care. Again, I'm stubborn about this, consistent with the movement principles, hmm. but focused on patients and families and accepting there is innovation. PACE programs for many years have provided fabulous longitudinal care to folks without utilizing traditional hospice care. I think senior housing where between 30 and 35% of all deaths occur is in the midst of a revolution in its own core business. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna be accompanied by a revolution in how end of life care is provided in those facilities, campuses, communities. And I think it's incumbent on us to go with that rather than fight it. So it isn't just about efficiency, it's also appreciating someone's gonna jump S curves. Someone's going to experience hyper growth like we did 25 years ago and at our expense unless we also participate in these new models of care. That's really good, Peter. And I agree with exactly those points you make. And quite often, don't you find it paradoxical, right? I mean, you think about the whole kind of life cycle, the bell-shaped curve of life, and we have the privilege in hospice or illness 
in that last stage of people's life to walk on sacred ground. But yet we ourselves, as kind of a segment, are going into that same exact cycle. Um, and gosh, there's been so many great books written, uh, you know, Jim Collins, How the Mighty Fall, all the organizations that didn't realize that where they were at that point in time. So I think some of what you're talking about and also you're talking to boards has kind of inspired you to write a white paper. And thank you for sharing it with me. What are some of the key points in that paper? Well, we're going to talk about one of my favorite quotes before we're done. And I'm an admirer of Daniel Patrick Moynihan having said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And I think boards have to start with marketplace facts. We, the hospice movement and market, have been immune from price competition. That era is over. So even if we grow in terms of quote unquote volume, meaning more patients served, we're going to face pricing pressure and pricing compression. We're going to face length of stay compression and pricing. We're going to face continued substitute competition. We are not the only folks that have models of care for helping folks with their end-of-life care experience. <clears throat> We're going to deal with innovation in markets we've served one way, like what's going on in senior housing. We're going to have to embrace value-based programming. We have literally been immune from it because of the Medicare Advantage carve-out. And so I think either metamorphosis is your friend because you're willing to change and leverage the skills you have, which should put you in a leadership position, or you're defensive for too long and others simply out-innovate you. And so I believe this could, should, for many, will be the best of times. I think hospices, when thinking creatively about the future, are the best situated, skilled organizations for this transformation. But there's going to be losers. And that simply has never happened in our 40 plus years as hospices. Very few of us have gone out of business. Very few of us have faced the kind of competition you see in other parts of healthcare. Let's not even talk about other non-healthcare industries. So I think this is an inflection point moment for boards. And I think that it really requires an open mind in terms of what does it mean to control your organization? What does independence mean? What does affiliation mean? Do we have the resources to do more than one thing at a time? And increasingly, I think for many organizations, the answer is no. And so if they only double down and fight the last war, they're not only going to find the last war ends, but they're not positioned to leverage what they might have, could have, I think, should have for the next chapter. Yeah, that's really good, Peter. We use the analogy, and maybe it's not a good one, but it feels apropos, which is we got to fly the current airplane while we're building the new one, and you got to do both at the same time. Um, which is why most organizations ride that curve all the way down, is that you just look at the whole nature of meetings, agendas, kind of that gravitational pull of what they're talking about, where they're spending their time, and it's all on the current business as is. Um, Collins wrote pretty good about this and how the mighty fall, that all of those are the reasons and um, that you just like, it's literally like fighting gravity, but you can defy gravity by where you put your time and attention and just start taking some of your attention, setting a meeting. Uh, we actually quarterly, we take all of our TC members, we call it our visioneering council meeting. And we titled it very deliberately to say, hey, I know your day-to-day is crazy and you got things clamoring for your attention, but let's kind of step off the merry-go-round and think about where it's going and where does it need to go for the future. You were going to say something. Well, I'll build on your metaphor. I'm not even sure that we have to build a new plane while flying this one. It may not be a plane. <clears throat> and I think in a lot of ways we're stuck with it has to look like what we've done. Look where the automotive industry is. Elon Musk didn't think about building a 
different car in the sense that the traditional automobile industry did. He thought about something completely different. And I think that sometimes we miss that it isn't necessarily evolutionary. If you look at a lot of emerging markets, they never embraced landline phones. They went right to mobile phones. So that wasn't just, oh, let's make our landlines better while we... No, we missed it. And so I push even harder on what you're suggesting, which I completely support. But I think it gets to the conundrum of the urgent and the necessary. I think many organizations in the hospice space face urgent issues every day and don't have the resources to also commit to the necessary. Because, you know, the classic role play here, if you took 10 of your colleagues and put them in a garage and said, you have to compete with hospice organizations, but you can't be a hospice, what would they come up with? I promise you a whole bunch of things, many of which are happening now. Yep, that's well said. It's interesting. We tried to give our kids uh, Christmas gifts that were um, that would better them. And so my son, we gave him popular science, popular mechanics. And I told him I'd pay him 20 bucks for every article he found that I could use. And the coolest article he found was, uh, uh, was it Volkswagen? It was somewhere in Europe. They recruited a GM engineer away. Um, and his task was to break the 100 mile per gallon barrier. And he kept, his team kept iteratively trying to redesign what was. They kept hitting the barrier. They started with a blank sheet of paper and they broke the 200 mile per gallon barrier. <laughs> and so I, to me, that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. We're in kind of what we're just trying to iteratively improve what I would call sustaining innovations, innovations in what is, um, as opposed to that totally disruptive innovation, which is if you start with a blank sheet of paper, how would you do it? And um, so, Peter, I'm kind of the mind, though, it's a both and. You now you think about like home health and, you know, hospitals, those things, those uh, entities have withstood a lot. And so are you kind of saying go all in to the new innovation or do you kind of see kind of where things are going that needs to be a bit of both and? I think we'll be blessed and cursed by what I'm about to say. I don't think that there's going to be an on-off switch for traditional hospice. In some respects, maybe we'd be better off if there was, because that sort of existential threat typically galvanizes folks more than anything else. But I don't think that's the reality. I think there's going to be something that looks much like traditional hospice for some time. I think that just might cause a long, slow death for a lot of our colleagues. And I think that conundrum often happens in healthcare because there isn't the on-off switch like we see in so many other industries, that we see sort of these long, slow periods of shrinkage. And as I said, blessing and curse. So I'm not suggesting to my colleagues, oh my God, your hair literally has to be on fire. But I am suggesting that I don't think one can any longer say, let's walk before we run because I think the flames are too close to outwalk. <laughs> I think we can outrun them. But <clears throat> I do think that this is the balancing act for boards because it's just tempting to hold on. It's been so good for so long. Peter, how can all these bad things be about to happen? I say, you know what? I can't assure you my list of seven or nine will all occur but we're back to the facts instead of opinions. If two or three of them do, that's a big problem. And besides all that, shouldn't we just wanna do the best thing for patients and families? Isn't that the legacy of the movement? Shouldn't we have the courage, like the folks who got us all started to say, mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, maybe there is a better way 
to provide care to the 30, 35% of people who die in senior housing? Isn't there just a better way? Should we have to be imperiled by somebody else? But as you said, Chris, innovation rarely comes from incumbents. And that's not just a healthcare lesson. Hospitals didn't invent outpatient surgery centers, now did they? Interesting, two of the biggest owners of outpatient surgery centers are now hospitals. So they figured out, you know what? Better do it to ourselves than let <laughs> someone else do it to us. And I think that's the metaphor for me. I think it won't be that hospices flip this switch and on April 7th, whatever year, there's no more traditional hospice. It's more, how can we be the ones jumping the S-curve? How do we create the outpatient surgery centers that are going to compete with our core hospitals? How do we invent continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis to compete with hemodialysis centers? The incumbents rarely do it, but that doesn't mean we can't. So maybe final thoughts, Peter, but include in those final thoughts, if you're writing a prescription for most of the programs that you're talking to their boards, what would be that prescription? And then any other final thoughts you want to share? You bet. I think this is a bifurcated prescription. I think, number one, we have to be more efficient at core hospice because it won't be a light switch. It will be the fundamental piece portion of our business for the foreseeable future. Unless, of course, we're so inefficient that the marketplace passes us by because commercialization does lead to price competition. And so first and foremost, we have to be efficient at what we do. I think that does speak to consolidation, whether literal member substitution affiliation or other creative ways to work with like-minded colleagues. At the same time, and one often leads to the other, to your point, Chris, we have to have the resources, not just to focus on the urgent, but the necessary. And that means the resources, for example, to potentially buy or start for L elder physician, nurse practitioner services. That means, if possible, in our states to either have or partner with PACE programs. That means to be able to imagine value-based programming, not as our enemy, but as our friend. PACE, of course, is an interesting variant of a value-based program that is an end-of-life care program. Oftentimes, PACE programs are sort of offended at the characterization that they're in the end-of-life care business. What's the number one discharge for people from PACE programs? They die. But they were fortunate enough to be cared for an organization consistently longitudinally for two to three years. And so I think we have this bifurcation challenge. How do we, consistent with an upbeat, positive view of the world, be more efficient? Efficiency isn't usually a fun smile conversation, but we have to make it that. And how do we free up resources to show the same courage, I'm a broken record here, that the people who got us all started 40 years ago did? Because they did have a blank piece of paper. They did say end of life care doesn't exist in the way we think it should for people in our communities. And I just want us to have the same courage they did to do it differently, presumably with the same focus. This should be all about the patients and families that we think we're providing better care and services for. You know, Peter, something that just occurred to me, and I apologize, I didn't ask you this ahead of time, but you know, you're right. They did have a blank sheet of paper, but St. Christopher's kind of informed it a little bit. Is there a modern day equivalent to St. Christopher's, do you think, or is it multiple St. Christopher's? Yeah, I think I'd love to think about that some more. Um, I, look, that I might think, be a cool project for you and I to work on, like we'll call it the St. Christopher's project. <laughs> I mean, I think inside certain institutional special needs plans, inside some PACE programs, inside some population health programs, in, inside some frail elder physician practices, I think there's certainly lots of St. Christopher-ish things going on. And I think to your point, we can learn from all of them. 
And I think there's some common themes among them. You know, the notion of an interdisciplinary team, I hope, stays with us. It's going to have to morph and change, but I think that will be one of the enduring contributions of the folks who started the hospice movement. This wasn't individual people doing things to other individual people. This was a yep. team focused on the patient as the center of the plan of care. And I think we can yep. innovate consistent with that, but in more creative, effective, efficient ways. Well said. Well, Peter, thank you. You're always thought provoking. Um, we could probably go on like 30 more minutes. Maybe I, if you love, I'd love to have you back later this year and we could kind of do a part two to this conversation. I'd love that. It's always fun talking to you, Chris. And thanks for the chance to chat with you and your guests. And as I always do, we always love to leave you, our listeners, with a quote. This one Peter picked, and he actually referred to it earlier. It's from Senator Daniel Patrick Monahan. And everyone is titled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.